0: Will you pray with me? God of the generations, illuminate our hearts and minds this day to your truth, to your mercy, and to your love. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord my rock and my redeemer, amen. I have a question for you. What qualities do you look for an ideal political candidate? Integrity. Integrity. Honesty. Honesty. I feel like I should answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Says the political figure. I know, I know. We're talking about politics and some folks think it might not be appropriate to talk about that in church. But the Bible is an incredibly political book, if you are not aware. And Jesus was certainly a political actor, a radical. So we're going to go there today, especially since we are talking about national leaders, like Israel's first kings. So what do you want to see in a political leader? You might think it would be good for this leader to be honest, integrous, maybe loyal, a cheerleader of sorts for your group. You might hope that they're a team player, someone who shares power instead of hoarding it for themselves. You might want someone to lead with a little bit of wisdom, maybe sprinkle a little bit of compassion and gentleness, a pinch of great courage, and an eye always looking out for the underdog. You might want someone who is familiar with international affairs, maybe some military experience, a person who knows how to play well with others. No, I'm not going to ask you who you are going to vote for next month, or even tell you who I think you should vote for. I've got opinions, but that's not time and place. But now that I have you thinking about what you might think a good leader should be, I want to share with you the qualifications of Israel's very first king. Wait for it. Here it is. The ideal qualities for a king. Really, really handsome and super tall. According to 1 Samuel 9, A man named Abiel had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. He stood, oh no, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. This is the scriptures, folks. So, tall, dark, and handsome. You can trust the hottie on the throne and nothing could possibly go wrong with that. We made a mistake. We've been journeying with the Israelites for the last several weeks through their stories of beginnings, becoming a people, beginning with Abram and Sarai, or Abram, Abraham and Sarah, who were called by God to become a great nation set apart, blessed to be a blessing. Sometimes we forget the to be a blessing part, but blessed to be a blessing by God. We've traveled with them for generations through slavery by the Egyptians and their release, their liberation from their oppressors in Egypt, through the wilderness on their way out of oppression and on their way to freedom. And then we meet them again like we did last week when they had already arrived to the land promised to them. Generations after when Moses' successor, Joshua, called the people to renew their covenantal promises with God because sometimes we forget. So Joshua was like, hey, remember, come back. So today we jump multiple generations forward to the time of the king's. We jumped over the time of the Judges, which, man, if you want to read like a soap opera horror story, read the book of Judges. It's terrifying. But in that book, we find more of the same. Israel straying and worshiping other gods. God allowing them to suffer those natural consequences and putting men and women in place whose job it was to lead them back to God. They would repent, the judge would die, and then they were worse than before. This was a cycle. They just kept doing this over and over again. The repeated refrain of the book of Judges is the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the, the repeating theme. The Israelites, real bad. They just keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. At this point, can you call it mistake? I don't, I don't know. It described this beginning of cycles of worsening disobedience. And that disobedience resulted in God allowing them to be defeated in in battle. And it just keeps telling the story over and over again like a horror story. Recounting the depths to which humanity can fall. Towards the end of the time of the judges, the last judge, Samuel, the people begin to ask for a king. Now up until this point, it's been God and the people. There have been priests, there have been judges, but it's been God and the people. God was king. They wanted to be like the nations around them. Then we can prosper. Then we can be good, they said and they wanted to make it official. They didn't want God as their king. They wanted to be like everyone else and have a king to govern them. And this angered Samuel, as you can imagine. But God reminded Samuel that the people weren't rejecting him. They were rejecting God. And in response, Samuel's only job was to warn them of what it would mean to have a king. These are the words that he shared with the Israelites. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war in the equipments of his chariots. Notice his, his, his. He will take your your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day." It's a pretty promising future. This would be the cost. You want a king? This is what's going to happen. The land will no longer be yours, at least not entirely. The king would demand loyalty and service, and they would no longer really be free. But the people would not hear it, and they still demanded a king, so God told Samuel to find them a king. Now, Saul is the very first of the kings. Again, remember tall, dark, handsome? Everything's going to be great. God blesses the beautiful. Yeah. But Saul is one of the first of three archetypes. The first king was handsome, charismatic, and charming. He was strong in battle, and God granted him success while he followed God's commands as delivered by, his, by Samuel. But as time went on, he became full of himself. Imagine. Prideful. And he decided to make his own decisions no matter if God said that was right or not. Silly things, big things. Samuel told Saul that because of his unwillingness to follow God faithfully, his family line was not going to be allowed to continue to reign. That the monarchy, the next king, was gonna go through someone else. A family line that would eventually descend from his son-in-law, David. Saul's narcissism and pride began to overtake him. We've never seen this before. And God's spirit left Saul. I think this is one of the the saddest moments in the historical narrative. God's spirit left Saul. And because God's spirit was no longer with him, he would fall into these fits of rage. He'd be filled with an evil spirit that would torment him. And he would become careless and vengeful and violent. He even threw a spirit his son, because he got mad at him for defending his friend. Several times at David, but that's another story. And he did all of this because David was becoming recognized as a mighty warrior. Even mightier than Saul, and that was the problem. He was a threat to the king. And so Saul became jealous and sought to take David's life, even while David was married to his daughter, Michal. Even while Jonathan, his son, was like best friends, maybe more than best friends, with David, and was willing to even go against his father to protect David. And he spent most of the rest of his reign trying to destroy David because he was a threat to the throne. We see in today's story that David is different than Saul, a man of mercy and respect for God's anointed. He had the best opportunity to take Saul out in a moment of vulnerability when he's going to the bathroom in a cave. But he didn't. And he showed Saul the hem of his cloak, telling him as such, hey, I could have took you out and I didn't because I have respect for you. I respect that God has placed you in this place of power. I wouldn't dare hurt a hair on your head. And one would think that this act of mercy would change Saul's heart. And it did momentarily. You saw, oh, you're better than me, you're more righteous, wah-da-da-da. Da, da, da. But he returned to his vengeful pursuit of David's life and he kept David on the run until he died. He continues this, this pursuit using endless resources of the people, just like God said they would until he eventually takes his own life in battle and David becomes king this tall dark and handsome king did exactly what God had said the king would do and the people suffered the ups and the downs that Saul created his power became his downfall so then we get a new king king David Someone who has great skin and beautiful eyes and is a mighty warrior. He's a man after God's own heart, according to the scriptures, who, like Saul, started off incredibly well. The prophet Nathan would speak words, God's words to David, reminding him to stay faithful to God. And he did for a while. <laughs> but he, too, began to stray He rested in his own strength, and he became complacent. He even stayed home from a battle when he should have been with his army. That was his job, but he decided to stay home. And while he was home, he committed sexual assault. And then he murdered someone to cover up the pregnancy that resulted, the king. So the prophet Nathan called him to repentance, and though David did repent, and and when we read Psalm 51, that was his cry. God, create in me a clean heart. I have sinned against you. Forgive me. But after this point in his life, though he kept reigning on the throne, though he kept leading, he suffered much loss and his family spiraled into all kinds of corruption, violence and pain. Once again, power became the downfall. So the third king, David's heir to the throne, was Solomon. Our third archetype was also a very great king. And he started out well, just like those who came before him. He wasn't seeking fame and fortune. When God asked him what he wanted, Solomon said, wisdom. I really want wisdom. It doesn't matter what else I have. If I, ha- if I don't have wisdom. So God granted him his request. And he also gave him fame and fortune. So even more than he had initially asked. He was faithful to God for a while. <laughs> Opulence has this way of darkening our hearts as well. And he became complacent hoarding wealth for himself, marrying like 700 princesses. Could you imagine? 700? And he also took 300 concubines, which was just women he took from the surrounding nations. So a 1,000 women he had at his pleasure. And then he eventually worshipped their gods with them. His taking really knew no boundaries. Once again, power becomes the downfall. See, power has this way of enticing us, whether it be our vanity, a dependence on our own strength, or the privileges and benefits that come along with it. And it has a way of becoming another god in our life. Pride has a way of becoming, pride has a way of redirecting our vision from God to ourselves. And it has a way of making it so that we can't see outside of ourselves. And when that happens, we get into all kinds of trouble. The result is often suffering. Personal suffering, yes but also suffering for those who are depending on us to offer protection and service. Those who are most vulnerable. None of us are exempt from keeping that in check, including and maybe especially our leaders. So as we head into this not so insignificant election of our own, It's easy to say that this message is just for them, for those who are running, for those who are campaigning, for those who want someone to become the new governor, the new senator, the new representative. And that our only responsibility is to elect the right candidate. And while this may be one of our responsibilities, We're also very responsible, maybe even more responsible for recognizing where we hold power and privilege and submit those places to God. Have we made a God of our own agenda? What serves us best even if we push the needs of the oppressed aside? Have we been blinded to the ways that we have privileged so much that we can't see the oppression of others? Because that might mean that I'm bad. Might mean that I have some responsibility. Are we so busy protecting our ego that it causes us to take advantage of those who need our voice and our advocacy and our love and compassion? If we have the power and privilege, are we not called to use it? Pride is most visible in the public eye. But what about our own hearts? What about the call of God on each and every one of us to follow Jesus and his teachings and his example? The call to be humble servants that work to relieve suffering and pain. So today, I invite you to consider what internal work you need to do. What internal work might God be calling us to do? What person might God be calling us to offer mercy to, even if they don't deserve it? Like Saul. What privilege might God be calling us to recognize and perhaps utilize to free people in bondage? How might we set aside our wants so that others can have what they need. These questions may be very difficult to wrestle with, but we're empowered to fulfill them by the Spirit of God at work within us. May we learn to recognize the voice of God always calling us back, and may we respond faithfully. Let us pray. Holy God, you are always calling us higher. You're always calling us to grow. You're always calling us to learn. May we have the humility to learn, to grow, to serve you more faithfully. May you create in us new hearts. Remind us of our hearts. Remind us of who you are and who what you call us to do. Thank you for your grace when we fall short and your willingness to keep working with us. We invite you, O oh God, to indwell us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people say. Amen.